I was reading uh, the story of King Arthur, the legend of King Arthur, and I had to explain this to Lauren. She was like, I'm not into that stuff. I was trying to tell her who Merlin was, and she's like, I don't know, I'm not into that. And uh, anyway, it's the legend of King Arthur, and there's the knights of the round table, and there's Camelot, and so it's all that kind of story. And I was reading a version of it, and um, it was interesting. And uh, in that version, Merlin isn't just like a magician or an enchanter. He's like an engineer, and he's a mathematician. And so people think the stuff he does, a lot of it, it's magic when it's just engineering. And so anyway, he's at, at this place, Care Camel, it's called, and it's this hilltop, and he's there scouting it out for King Arthur. And they're going to build Camelot, a fortress, a city there this incredible city. And so he's there, and it's, there's nothing there yet. It's just kind of this flat-topped hill. And there's a sheep herder who kind of herds his sheep along in the midst of it, and uh, he looks at Merlin, and Merlin says, you know, he says, who are you? And Merlin says, oh, I'm a king's man, and I'm here on behalf of the king. And the old man says, oh, we've had kings before. Well, you know, they come and go, these kings. And Merlin says, oh, you haven't had a king like this one. And the old man says, oh, I know kings. They come and they take your sons and daughters and, you know, steal your food. And, you know, this is what they're like. And they're all the same. And Merlin says, no, 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 this is the high king. He will, he's going to be different. He will take your sons and daughters and protect them. And he will provide, you know, pasture for your sheep. And he will, he will be a king of justice. And the old sheep herder's like, yeah, we'll see. And he, you know, goes off. And I kept thinking about it, and I kept thinking, you know, a lot of us feel like that sheep herder. Like when people talk about, oh, the king, oh, the kingdom, you're like, yeah, okay. But you know what? I've hoped, and I kind of, I've had my hopes dashed before. You know, I've tried this, this whole thing, and, and, I, and I thought things would change, and they didn't. I, I tried a new king, or I tried a new government, or I, a new school, or a new routine, or a new city, or a new program, or a new resolution, or a new spouse, or a new church. And it just didn't seem to help. It didn't make things better. We're back in our Luke series. Luke for everyone is what we've titled it. And uh, we're working our way through Luke. And it's Dr. Luke's account of the life of Jesus. That's what we're working through, story by story, passage by passage. And he's just, he's meticulous in the details. He loves the details. He adds these details into his stories, and, and the stories are on point, and there's all these repeated references to the kingdom, to kingdom, to kingdom, God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven. And as I'm thinking about Merlin and this story, and I'm thinking about being back in Luke, I'm thinking about what kind of kingdom would be good news? And more specifically, what kind of kingdom would be good news for everyone? For the good and the bad and the insiders and the outsiders and the sinners and the righteous and the broken and the put together. What kind of kingdom would be good news for all those people? Let's read Luke chapter 14 is where we are. We've got a couple little stories put together. And we'll talk about this kingdom. Luke chapter 14, if you have your Bible, you can follow along. Um, we do have some Bibles at the front table if you ever want to follow along. Um, chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. 
One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, which is like inflammation, swelling. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited... Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. Amen. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At that time, At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Uh, Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. There's a Scotsman there in Israel. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. These stories, all of them make a statement about religion. I don't know if you noticed that, but they do. They talk about what I can do or what I'm owed or what I deserve and the kingdom. My big idea this morning is this, that the kingdom of God comes subversively undermining religion with the good news. The kingdom of God comes subversively undermining religion with good news. This is a kingdom of compassion. There's a story Jesus tells earlier in Luke. We talked about it in Luke when we were going through Luke chapter 10. It was this well-known story of the Good Samaritan. 
It's the story of a guy who's traveling. Jesus tells the story of a guy who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And on the way, he gets ambushed by robbers and they beat him and they take his clothes and they take all of his belongings and they leave him lying there for dead. And as he's lying there, hoping someone will come along, along comes a priest. And the priest, maybe on his way to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, doesn't stop. He goes by on the other side of the road. He sees him and he goes by around him. Oh, no. And then along comes a Levite, like a worship leader, comes along and it's oh so awesome. Oh, great, a worship leader. And he's singing, how great is our God. And he's like going along and then he sees, oh my goodness. Okay. And he goes around on the other side and goes off. And the guy's like, oh no, if a priest and Levite won't save me, who's going to save me? And then along comes a Samaritan. And I'm sure then the Jewish guy was a little bit nervous because Samaritans and Jews are enemies. And maybe, you know, Samaritan's not going to help him. He's going to finish him off, you know. That would be a good, good job to do on your enemy. Except for this Samaritan doesn't. He helps him. He takes him and he binds up his wounds and he puts him on his own animal. And then he takes him to the nearest inn and then he offers to pay for whatever debts he incurs. And then he says, I'm going to come back again and I'm going to make sure that his account is clear. This is the story Jesus tells. Now, you know, the point of the story is about the good Samaritan. Who's the good Samaritan? Who's the good neighbor? But I feel for the other two who get a bad rap. The priest and the Levite. I feel for them. You know why? Because they're closest to me. (laughs) Right? I'm a pastor. That's like a priest, kind of. Close. A Levite, that's like a worship leader. I've been a worship leader for years. I was a worship leader. That's close. You know, and I feel like, you know, these guys, they have good reasons why they wouldn't touch him. If they're going up to Jerusalem to serve in the temple, then they can't touch a dying body. Well, okay, or dead body. I mean, well, it's like pretty close. The guy might die while you're touching him, and then you'd be in trouble. You'd be defiled. And they have to keep themselves pure so that they can serve in the temple. They need to be undefiled. And so, in my mind, they have good religious reasons why they shouldn't help this person. And that's the problem. Religious reasons. Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's his question. I mean, how are they supposed to answer? The experts of the law and the Pharisees, how are they supposed to answer? Okay, yeah, it's lawful. Go ahead. No, yeah, I don't know. We were just being jerks. Go ahead. No, it's not lawful, Jesus. Well, I mean, are you just going to pray for him or are you going to heal him? Because if you're going to pray for him, you could do that if you were part of, you know, the school of Hillel. Because they're okay with praying on the Sabbath for someone for healing. But if you healed him, then maybe you're a healer and that would be work. But it's kind of a gray area, Jesus. Well, I mean, is, if they're dying, then you could, you could save their life. And that would be okay. But like, this guy's not dying. He's got drops. He's just like, he's going to be here tomorrow. So, you know, I think it's work, Jesus. I think you shouldn't do it. And the, if you were part of the school of the Shemaites, they would say, no, none of it. Don't pray. Don't do, and you, we don't do anything on the Sabbath. This is the deal. I can't help you because religion says I'm not allowed. 
Like, this is religion for you. Religion will tell us there's a good, obscure, higher spiritual end which justifies the neglect of the poor and the hurting around us. And the priorities of the the Pharisees and the experts of the law was to keep and protect the law. That's a good thing. They were trying to keep and protect the law. But the purpose of the law was to show us that we fail to do that. We can't keep and protect it. We fail. We're unable to do it. I told you before about a story about the homeless camp and how I got an email from my friend Colleen Thompson. And she emailed and said she'd been down there. She works in the community. And she said, I've been down here and there's hungry people. Would, would the church, would your church be willing to help in some way? And I hemmed and hawed over it for a while. And then I wrote her back and I was like, I feel a lot of conflict in myself over this. This is a very complicated issue. There's like, how are we helping? Do we just create dependency? Are we saying it's okay that they're there? Are we like, I mean, what, what are we, 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 did we start doing this forever? And okay, like, and does it solve the problem? It doesn't. I, like, I have all these things, all these wrestles. And then we're in the middle of like a super hot debate. You know, people are angry about this here. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's complicated. And she wrote me back. My paraphrase for her email was, maybe it isn't. So complicated. Can't we just feed the hungry people? The truth is, deep down, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to help people. And I'm happy for some religious reason to get me off the hook. Yeah, you know, I I can't because there's this whole thing here. Oh, just barely dodged that one. But the guy in front of Max, man, what am I going to do? I got to think of some reason why I shouldn't give him that. He's going to go buy alcohol. Why I can dodge. And it confronts my heart. Why does Luke tell so many Sabbath healing stories? He could just put in one. The disciples tell us they didn't put in everything Jesus did. There was too much, which is why sometimes one of them is telling certain stories and they overlap. And then there's certain stories you're like, well, no one else told this story. It's like, well, there's a lot of stories to tell. But Luke puts in a whole bunch of Sabbath healing stories. In Luke chapter 6, he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And then he heals a withered hand. And in Luke chapter 13, he says, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And then Jesus heals the hunched over woman. See, the good news tells us that the priority is not keeping the law, but seeking the kingdom. Jonathan Edwards says, Godliness is more easily feigned in words than in actions. Ouch. It's more easily feigned in words than actions. 
In John chapter 12, there's the story of Mary, who Jesus is visiting, Mary and Martha and Lazarus at their home in Bethany, and it's before he's going to die, and he's there at this house with all of his different people are all there hanging out, all the disciples and the entourage. And Mary comes and she pours this bottle of perfume over the feet of Jesus, and she starts wiping his, his feet. And it smells in the house, and everyone's looking at this. This is not like the bottle of perfume I bought at the bay. This is like a thing of value. They would pass this down. It's worth like a year's salary. I don't know what you make in a year, but like put that number in there. I don't care what it is. It's going to be more than you would spend on perfume. And she pours it out over his feet. And then someone says, this is a waste. This isn't right. Why didn't we sell this and give the money to the poor? They're hungry people. Thank you, Judas. Finally, someone like pointing out something important here. Jesus, though, doesn't side with Judas. Funny about that. Jesus says, no, Mary chose what's right. She's doing the right thing. Why? Why is what she did right and not selling it and giving it to the poor? That sounds right. Because she chose Jesus first. She chose Jesus first. The good news says that although we humanly tried to keep the law, we couldn't. We couldn't do it. In fact, what we did was we failed so badly trying to keep it and protect it that we twisted it all up beyond recognition. And we made laws for the laws and we kept only the ones that appealed to us. And then we made loopholes for our pet sins and addendums so that we would feel comfortable. That's what we did as humanity around the law. But the good news invites us away from religion to a new way of living. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, this isn't a message about why you and I should be better, Samar- better good Samaritans. This is a message about how we could never be without the power and the presence of Jesus. We'll never be better good Samaritans. There was one who was, who loved, who kept the Sabbath. He's the good Samaritan who was rejected. And then in compassion, he came and he bound up our wounds. He healed us. He paid our debts and he promised to return. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And we live in compassionate response to his kingdom and his life in us. Secondly, it's a kingdom of humility. In university, I was on a comedy improv team. I know it's a shock to lots of you. You'd be like, you? Really? Wow. Yeah, no, I was. And you know what? I was good. That's right. I was good. I was good at being a fool, actually. That's really what I was good at. I would like, be as crazy as I could, and people thought it was funny. And uh, I got so much great response about how funny it was that I would make such a fool of myself that I thought that what I needed to start doing is I need to start, stop ref, um, accepting compliments because it was making me proud. 
And so I decided I'm not going to receive any more compliments. Not to me, not to me, to the Lord, to the Lord. No, no, not to me, not to me, to the Lord, to the Lord. Give that, give that to the Lord. And um, so one day before I knew Lauren and before she knew me, um, we had a comedy improv night where it was the, the real actors, they said. like So people in the drama program against like comedy improv people. And so it was like a funny way they could do it. And so me and my friends were on one team and there's other people. And so it was really fun. We had a good time. My parents came and Lauren says she was there and she saw this person and he was such a crazy person on the stage that she remembered him. And then she heard that his parents were there watching this. She said, who would do this in front of their parents? Like, wow. Anyway, she thought it was funny, though, too. She did laugh. And then, so after she saw, it was me. She saw me across the the lobby, and she said, oh, I'll go say good job to him. So she came over, and she said, hey, great job up there tonight with one of her friends. And she remembers me going, no. Like that. And she says, she right away was like, oh, he's one of those drama people who's really loud on stage and like super shy in real life, regular life. Or the words I put on it are like socially inept, right? It's like, ah. And the truth is that I'm not even good at pretending to be humble. That's the truth of it, is I can mess that up too. Like, false humility is great. It's great for, like, covering up what you really think about yourself, which is, I'm so awesome, I'm going to be humble. Right? The reality is I'm not that humble. I struggle with pride. And when I finally do show signs of humility, I get proud that I'm being so humble. That's the problem. You're laughing, but it's true. When you're invited... By someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor, Jesus says, lest someone more distinguished than you show up. But Jesus didn't make this up. This isn't like original to Jesus, this idea. In fact, it's from the Proverbs. Solomon said it first. Proverbs 25. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Like, why do we need this advice? Why do we need to know this? Like, wouldn't we just, couldn't we just get that? Wouldn't that just be like common nature to us? Do you know why I need to hear this advice? Is because I think I'm owed. That's why. And I think deep down, lots of us live like, we might not admit it, but we live like we think we're owed. We served. We sucked it up. We gave. We put in our time. We did the hard work. We suffered. We endured. We persevered by the sweat of our brow. And now we deserve some acclaim, don't we? A little credit, the applause, some recognition, maybe that place of honor. I deserve that. You know, religion offers us the same message. Religion says this, keep the rules, live a good life, do what God wants, and then he'll pay you back later. In the end, he'll pay you back. So we kind of walk around like, pretty sure God owes me a favor or two. 
did give him my life, after all. A pretty big gift. Hey, God? Yeah, gave you my whole life, so how's about a little help on this lottery ticket? Come on, come on. What? Come on. I gave you my whole life. This is just a lottery ticket. We kind of we go around thinking that and living like that. But the subversive message of the good news is this. That not that God owes us, but that we owed God. Before I lived with Lauren, I had roommates. And uh, before I got married to Lauren, I had roommates. And um, we you know, lived in this house. And so I can remember going to one of my roommates and being like, hey man, you owe me 25 bucks. Remember we were, we did that thing, you know, and, and you borrowed 25 bucks. And my friend was like, oh yeah. I mean, I thought we would just put that to the 50 bucks you owed me. And I was like, I, what? I don't owe you 50 bucks. Yeah. I remember from this and from that and from that. And you'd never, like, I keep waiting for you to pay me. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Look, it's a horrible feeling to move from like being the lender to the borrower. That's not a good feeling. And like the debt he owed me is like less than what I owed him. So now I'm leaving this exchange. I'm not, I don't have the 20 bucks I thought I would have or 25. I have negative 25 because I still have to pay him 25. That's not a good feeling. But it changes if the lender forgives you your debt and my friend says, oh, never mind. I didn't think you're going to pay me anyway. You'll forget. <laughs> Just forget it. Just, it's done. I'd be like, really? Wow. And suddenly my heart moves from embarrassment to gratitude. I feel grateful. <gasps> wow, thank you. That's so awesome. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 14 says, And you, one of my favorite verses, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know the most devastating thing about this party advice Jesus is giving? Hey, you know, write it down and bring it out at the party. Sit in the low spot. Okay, good. Okay, don't sit at the head of the table. Wait till they seat everyone. Good party advice. The most devastating thing about it isn't that we should do this. It's that Jesus did this. Philippians tells the story in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How are we going to be humble in this kingdom? We imitate Jesus. We imitate Jesus laying down our rights, taking the lowest spot and trusting God to bring justice. I was at the cross-country finals, the district cross-country finals this year. I had two sons who are running in it. Now, they're both in the same intermediate. 
And so I was there at, it's at um, Golden Ears, Alouette Lake, um, the picnic area. And, you know, I've told you before how I thought I would be a cross-country runner because I watched Chariots of Fire. You remember that? You should, because I talk about it a lot. It was a dream. And, and I started running cross-country as a kid, and I ran, and I never got better than fifth. And usually, like, I, I ribboned, so I was, like, between 5 and 29. Closer, you know, on the back end, if I'm honest with you. Um, but I realized, you know, this isn't going to make a career here because I can't seem to break into the top part. Now, my sons are a little bit different. They are be- better runners than I ever was. Elijah, every year he gets better and better at running. And so I kind of was like, oh, like, maybe it's him. Maybe I was meant to have him and he's going to be Eric Little. <laughs> And so at this cross-country meet, I was like, Elijah, just, you know, do your best. And I, like, helped him get position or whatever. And they start, and they're off running. And then they go around, and they come through the picnic area, and they're going to go into the trees. And as they break through, they're now, like, in a line, not in a herd. Elijah's in fifth. And I was like, oh, he can do this. Fifth, he can do it. And last year, he got third or, yeah, he got third. So I was like, okay. And so then off into the trees, I asked him if I could tell this story. And off into the trees, and so they're gone. And I'm, I go down and I wait. And they are come down this slope when they break out of the trees. And they come down the slope and then around and then up to the finish line. And so I went and I waited by the trees. And there's all these parents there and picnic tables. And I was waiting. And I was waiting. And I was waiting. I got my camera ready. And then suddenly, they break through the trees. And it's Elijah. And this other kid who's really, really fast. Usually he's like a whole, like, mile ahead of everyone. And the race is only a mile. And he's like, they're shoulder to shoulder running down this slope. And I was like, oh, he's going to do it. He could take this kid. I know he can. I'm going to document it. And I start taking pictures. And as they get down to the bottom of the slope, suddenly this kid goes like this. To Elijah. And just like Eric Little, Elijah is thrown off the course, through the crowd of people, past the picnic tables, and the kid keeps running. But just like Eric Little, Elijah kept running. And he ran, and I watched him. He ran all the way around all the people and all the picnic tables, and he broke back onto the course. And he ran, and he tried to catch up to this guy, but he didn't do it. Not like Eric Little. He didn't win. He got second. And you know, yeah, that's right. And inside I was enraged. Not about second. I was enraged that he'd been pushed. And I stormed over to the finish line. And I walked over as they're in the gate. And I walked up to that kid and I said, Hey, you cheated. You pushed him. And he looked at me and he was like, And then he was like, well, he was pushing too. I was like, what you did was cheating. You pushed him out of the race. And then I was so angry. I was like, I'm going to hurt this kid if I don't leave. So I walked away and the teacher, uh, his teacher, teachers and the principal were there and they were like, what? They had never seen me be mad. They were like, 
what, what's going on? And I was like, the, the kid pushed Elijah. He went like this. And then he like ran out of the race and he kept running. But he's like, didn't mind. He's like, oh. And I was so angry. I kept going on and on. And then the teacher looks at me and she's like, well, do you know the kid you raised? And I was like, yes. She said, look, he's over there. And we looked over. He's over there shaking the kid's hand and talking to him. And he came back and I said, what did you say to that kid? You should not be talking to him. I'm still going to hurt him. And Elijah says, I said, great race. You ran really well. And he said, sorry about my dad. (laughs) He gets really into this. One of us, one of us was living in the kingdom (laughs) in that moment. It wasn't me. (laughs) Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And it's a kingdom of welcome. I'm a person who doesn't like much mess. Uh, If you ask my mom, there's a, there was a time when I was little and suddenly my drawers just became clean. I like, had all my stuff folded and I really liked it that way and, and my room became clean and I liked it that way. I was like a tidy person. And, uh, you know, I like rounding off odd numbers and I like tidying the loose ends. Sometimes if I'm moving money from one thing to another, I'll like make it a round number because it just appeals to me in some weird way. I picture heaven like Disneyland. It's going to be cleaner than clean. You know, no tears and no litter, right? Isn't there's a verse about that somewhere? And I, I played Monopoly with my friends. I went to join them once, and, and they were already started the game. And I said, oh, I'll be the banker for you. And then I went around, and I tidied all their money. And that was when they looked at me and they said, you've got some weird quirks, Jonathan. So the truth is, when Jesus starts talking about open party invitations, I feel uncomfortable. Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. I'm thinking, I'm not as worried about being repaid as, like, the quality of the party. I don't know who's going to show up to this party. Is this a good idea? I, I have a hard enough time inviting my own friends for a party, and I'm going to overlook them and invite people I don't know? Like, that's hard. Passing over your friends for these unknown, you know, people. I couldn't do that. I'm with the guy who changes the subject. I'm with that guy who says, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat in the uh, bread in the kingdom of God. Like, I feel like he's like, you know, thanks, Jesus, way to kill the atmosphere. Like, tell the host he should have invited someone else to this party. Like, this guy might be a rabbi, but he's not good at party convo, right? Uh, Jesus, you know, what about the proverb? Like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. What about that one? You know, don't insult the host. Jesus doesn't seem to care he goes on into another parable, another story. This time, it's like the one in Matthew 22 that Matthew records. There's a host, there's a feast, there's a banquet, a wedding feast or a banquet. And the host invites people and they refuse to come. And so then when they refuse to come, the invitation is extended to everyone. To, you know, in this case, Matthew 22, it says... The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. It's such a weird verse. Both bad and good. And in the Luke story, it's the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. So, like, I don't know about for you, but suddenly this party seems like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to be comfortable anymore. This doesn't sound comfortable. Religion tells us that we deserve the, the heavenly banquet, the rewards banquet. That's, it's like for me and other people who deserve it, right? Like, we're not opening it up to everyone. And the Jews believe this too. They deserved it for being chosen, children of Abraham. And they'd, maybe some of them had started letting some of the little things go because they knew the big thing is all that mattered, which is the birth certificate. And we believe this sometimes too. We think because we're good, or we, maybe some of us, we've been Christians for a long time. Oh yeah, no, I got that nail. We read our Bibles some days, and we tell the truth when it suits us. And we're kind and generous, so kind and generous to the people we like. And we keep forgiving and forgiving until we don't want to anymore, or we can't. But on the whole, it looks pretty good, doesn't it? Jesus said... Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Why does he say that? To these Pharisees and these experts of the law, the the people who seem to be keeping the law the best, he says, they're going in ahead of you. Why? Because the point isn't, it's not about who deserves it. It's about who responds. Jesus, they're going in. You're standing out here quibbling. They're already going in. The door opened. They're already in there. They already found their seat. Jesus tells his Pharisee friend that God expects nothing more than he was willing to do himself. In Jesus, God opened the invitation wide. No more, not to more wealthy field owners or oxen buyers, but to the hungry spiritual poor. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The good news says only Jesus is worthy, worthy of the feast. But Jesus opens the invitation to whoever would respond to him. Good and bad, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the outsider Gentiles, that's me, the outcast, the hungry, the thirsty, the broken. We wrote on our website, we believe in the redemptive power of Jesus to reconcile and make new any willing heart. I didn't just write it on there because I thought it was trendy or trite or cool or whatever. I put it on there because I hope we believe it. I hope we carry it around with us, this deep down belief in the redemptive power of Jesus to make new any willing heart. The kingdom of grace welcomes us regardless of our social status or our color or our gender or our appearance or our sexual orientation or our age or our past history or, or, or. And it invites us instead by virtue of the worth and sacrifice of Jesus and our response to his invitation. Our response is subversive. But do you know what? 
when we try to do this, extend the same invitation, it is messy and uncomfortable to open wide the door and say, Jesus welcomes everyone, we welcome everyone. Believing in his ability to transform us. The kingdom of God comes subversively undermining religion with good news. It's not uh, the proverb-like advice of Jesus to get us to act better. It's to uncover our hearts and uncover the kingdom. And the truth is that good news will win over religion in the end. This is a kingdom of compassion. Jesus gave himself to rescue us when we were still dead in our sins. And we're called to proclaim the compassionate love of Jesus that fulfills the Sabbath and heals our hearts. And it's a kingdom of humility that Jesus gave himself as the servant of all to pay what we owed. And we lay down our rights in gratitude and in humility at the feet of a humble king. And it's a kingdom of welcome. Jesus welcomed us when we were strangers and outsiders. This motley crew, you are. And we're sent to proclaim the open invitation of the king to a feast and that there's a place at the table for all who are willing to come. Jesus made the way open. Let's pray.